And would you pray together with me? And gracious Heavenly Father, as we come together in this time of worship, we do so with, with a season in mind. For we've gone through Lent and now we arrive at Palm Sunday. And, and Lord, it is not simply a ritual that we go through, but Lord, I pray that you'd impress it upon our hearts so that we might allow your word to, to f- refresh the relationship we have with you. Oh, Lord, where would we be without you? And where would we, what would we be, Lord, without a relationship with you? And Lord, I pray that you would make it vibrant once again this morning in the reading of your word and in the understanding and in the hearing of your voice. This I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> I probably do need to begin with a word of apology, apology to the PowerPoint people and to Grant and to, uh, to George. I... Uh, have been away for the last couple of weeks to Arizona, and about three months ago in putting together the plan for the sermons, I had thought I had a really good message. In fact, I did have a good message. I did this actually three weeks ago uh, on the night before and last yesterday after having it all together and an outline in your bulletin and everything all set up. I just looked at it and I thought, I got to do something different. I got to do something different. So uh, I've, I've changed a bit, and so you have a nice outline in your bulletin there. It, 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 someday it'll work, but just turn it around, and you can use the backside for whatever notes you're going to take uh, today. Every year, <clears throat> we hear the story of Palm Sunday. But a, as we hear it and as we read it, I, I often wonder if we can t- fully grasp the, the drama of that day. And I, I, I don't know if I have the power of imagination that is strong enough to actually paint the proper picture of this particular moment in time. In, in fact, I doubt even the best efforts of someone like Cecil B. DeMille or even Steven Spielberg could, could bring that spectacle of the day to life. But for, for our moment together this morning, I, I want you to open your Bible to two passages, the first being the 11th chapter of Mark's Gospel as I try to fill in the colors of this scene. In verse 8, we, we heard George read that passage this morning, that after Jesus had begun his journey to Jerusalem, he was seated on the colt of a donkey, we read that many of the people spread their cloaks on the road and others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Now, at first, it may sound like a, a simple project. It doesn't take much imagination to make many, just a few, (laughs) that are just involved in this particular scene. But in the light of, of history, the history of Passover, the words many and others just fail to to hit the point. They they, they seem a bit shallow. So let, let the facts fill the scene. This is all happening on the feast of the Passover. It is the highest holy day on Israel's calendar. It's the Passover, the whole week of celebration in, in the commemoration of a single and most brilliant moment where God, with power, set his people free, bringing them out of captivity in Egypt. It was an annual event designed to take the children of Israel right back to the exodus from Egypt where God heard their cry and set them free. Oh, there were other feasts on the calendar, but none of them came close to the Passover in the way of pomp and circumstance and the power of imagery 
that had developed over time. According to the census reported by the historian Josephus, dated just a few years from this moment found in Mark 11, the number of lambs that were sacrificed at Passover came to 260,000 lambs. (laughs) Can you imagine that? The sacrifices that took place in that week before Passover? And because, now do your math in your mind with, together with me, because one lamb was allowed to be offered up for ten people, it could be estimated that the number of worshipers who had come to Jerusalem for this particular feast was over two million people. You're talking about not just many people, you're talking about a mass of humanity, all brought to the city of Jerusalem into a threshold of excitement and sparkling with the highlights of all of this pageantry and symbolism that surrounds this, this event. And in Mark 11, we have a Passover that is unlike any other before or after. Because here, all of the elements of the pageantry and the symbolism become galvanized around one single figure, and that is Jesus Christ. Consider all of the elements that came into critical mass at this particular moment. The sum total of three years of reputation that that had been built up around him, the stories being told, the miracles that had been expressed, the testimonies that had been given, had touched so many lives Just think of everything that had been said by those who were healed and delivered and fed and taught by him. His reputation was known, and the immediate events in Bethany just days before where Lazarus had been raised from the dead could not help but stir up the soul of what one writer has called the teeming multitude in Jerusalem with a sense of anticipation. Jesus was coming this year. And his arrival made this whole event just come to life. Now this morning, I I want you to see how Jesus fulfilled one part of that pageantry. When we read in Mark chapter 11, verse 8, that the people were prepared to spread out their cloaks before Jesus and that they cut down the palm branches to lay before him, it was not an isolated event that just happened on that particular year because of Jesus Christ. When we read in verse 9 that those who went ahead and those who follow shouted, they actually chanted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What we have is actually an annual tradition that was about to take on a whole new meaning because of Jesus Christ. You see, a, a large part of the pageantry of the Passover was prepared for in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, you know, was the hymn book of God's people. And in it, the Psalms were organized around certain thoughts and events and festivals, and there Passover had its place. And in beginning in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 113, there were six Psalms that were known as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, all related to the, 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 the uh, Exodus from Egypt, and these were the psalms that were sung during the Passover. Now, the word halal is where we get the word hallelujah from, and it means to sing and shout with joy. That also has its root meaning, to utter a cry for help, which strengthened that joyful sound of these psalms 
because their help and their salvation had already arrived because God had acted in the first Passover. So these six Egyptian halal songs were sung each year at Passover as a way to get everybody up to speed and, and on the same page and in praising God uh, for having heard their cry for help and had, having expressed His power and salvation. And beginning with Psalm 13, the people would sing these songs together every day, every year, until they would finally come to Psalm 118. Where then the score of all the songs finally comes to this chorus that we have in Mark 11. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now you can imagine two million people all singing together these psalms and then coming to this point. One writer says their daily song created a crescendo of praise to God for his ability to save. And one song after the next was like a wave rising higher and higher until it would arrive at the crest of 118th Psalm with the chorus. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, it may be hard to grasp the scope of this scene unless you actually think of two million people tuned into one voice of praise. But this is Passover. And so into this scene comes Jesus. And when he comes, it is not just a song. It is the personification of everything that the song meant and was intended to be. So now I'm going to ask you to turn to a second passage this morning. And I want you to turn to that very special psalm. It is the song of Palm Sunday, Psalm 118. If you have your Bibles, please open it there. And if your mind begins to wander, well, let it wander through Psalm 118 as I, as, I, as I touch on the themes as they begin to sparkle throughout the psalm. As you turn there, let me explain the setting of the psalm. It is what is known as a processional psalm, which means that it would begin outside of the gates of the temple, and it was meant to be recited as the gates of the temple were opened and everybody would enter in. It was a chant that the people would have, and in fact, it was intended to be spoken of in a chant sort of way. And it would prepare the people then finally to appreciate being in the presence of God. Now, if you read it with care, you will notice that the psalm is broken into three parts. Now, I know if, if you have outlines in your Bible, and scholars do this, they, they outline the psalm in different ways, but there are three primary parts to this psalm. Each one of them have a unique voice. And the first part of that psalm has a first-person voice. It is in verse, the first four verses, where the voice was traditionally led by a priest, you can imagine now, picture this, the gates are just about ready to be opened, the, temp, the priest has come out and he's now speaking to the people. And, and he would initiate the proceedings with a call to praise. And he would challenge, really, the, the crowd as two groups of worshipers coming to the temple to testify to God's abiding faithfulness. And the two crowds were these. First, they were the people at large. The two million who had gathered. And then the second were the priests who were all in their robes and refinement. And so these two groups he was addressing. 
And, and, and first he would speak to the people at large, then he would speak to the priests, and he would go back and forth until finally there would be a resounding shout from all. And you can see what I have on your outline is the call in those first four verses where the priest says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. And then with a sweep of his hand, he would then turn to one group, the group of the people, and he'd say, Let Israel say, His love endures forever. And they would say it. And then he would turn to the other group, the priests, and he said, the house of Aaron, let them say, his love endures forever. Now, <clears throat> let me see if I can help you get the feel for this. I'm going to split the congregation up right now. You guys are the people, the people of Israel, okay? You are the, you are the two million, okay? So multiply yourselves, okay? And you... You're the house of Aaron. You are the priests on this side. You got that? And I will be the priestly voice. And, and I will prompt you and I will say, uh, let the house of Israel say, and your voice is, his love endures forever. So let me hear you say it. His love I can't hear you. Okay, and then let the house of Aaron say, Okay, now we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna really kind of get the feel of this here. So, okay, I said, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, <laughs> I don't know if it's me, maybe I wouldn't make a good cheerleader, but you, know, you get the idea that it would go on like this, a cascade back and forth and back and forth with a building sense of momentum. And even though the psalm doesn't record it here, that action would continue and continue in an endless loop as it were. Back and forth and back and forth under the direction of the priest. What do you say? I can't hear you. What do you say? I can't hear you. Say it like you mean it. Back and forth, back and forth. Let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. Now, can you just imagine the power in such a moment? It's like waves crashing back and forth. Well, even the hardest rock of a heart would, would, would tend to crack a bit under the, under the dynamic of those waves. Even the most stubborn and, and obstinate soul could actually sense the touch of the love of God in this. That the love of God does endure forever. And I can't help but think that the product of such a dynamic would breathe this sense of hope that it would be true. I hope that it would be true. I cannot help but think that there is in every human heart a longing to be loved by God so that his love would, would endure forever. The philosopher hit the mark when he said that there is a God-shaped void in the human soul, in every human soul, that nothing else can fill but the love of God. And who knows why two million would come each year to Jerusalem, whether it was just out of rote ritual, but I have to believe that many of them came in order to keep their hope alive, 
that maybe God would touch them too. And as pastor, I know that there are many who come to church to join in the songs and hear the words, hoping that it would, it would become true for them too. But they're just still off to the side. Words of praise may not be words of of personal testimony. They, in fact, may be for you more of a desperate prayer for the reality to enter into your heart. God, I, I want to know that you do love me with a love that endures forever and is one that comes straight from heaven. And so I will keep calling out that name. So you can imagine how every year how those words would touch that part of the heart that was looking for an answer and how that chorus would, 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 would keep hope alive. In verse 5 then, in Psalm 118, you will notice that the voice of the, of the psalm changes. It goes from a you sort of sense to a me sort of sense. And if this were a drama, you would find that individual voices now step to the center of the stage. Maybe just one voice, but but I would like to think it would be many different voices that would step to the center of the stage to give personal testimony as to the reasons that they are giving thanksgiving. From from verses 5 through 21, what you do is you have a list of personal experiences behind the praise. You have personal testimony. Verse 5 could could almost begin this way. Let me tell you what has happened to me. Look at verse 5. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free. That's my testimony. I know the the love of God endures forever. I can give testimony to it. And from verses 5 through verse 21, the single voice becomes many voices, each one of them speaking with the authority of personal experience. Let me tell you what God's love is all about. In verse 7, the Lord is with me. He has been my helper. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And you see that then unfolding. In in verses 1 through 4, Uh, That was spoken of more in terms of generality. Yeah, I can say that God's love endures forever, but what does that really mean? In verses 5 and beyond, it becomes very personal. And details are given, and names are named. And looking at the past, then now fills this song with meaning. It's not, I hope that the Lord, love of God, endures forever, but I know that the love of God is real, and there is power in making it personal. That is such an important thing for each one of us to take to heart. To go through our lives to realize where God has touched us and blessed us, and then give it a voice. To speak it out. (laughs) I, I, I was struck not long ago, reading a, 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 a report about a growing body of research that has tied specific expressions of gratitude with any number of positive emotional and physical benefits. It was actually November of 2010, an article I cut out of the Wall Street Journal, which summarized this research. Adults who frequently recognize their blessings and express their gratitude have more energy, more optimism, more social connections, and more happiness than those who do not. 
They are also likely to be less, they are less likely, I'm sorry, to be depressed, envious, greedy, or addictive. (laughs) They earn more money, they sleep more soundly, they exercise more frequently, and they have greater resistance to viral infection. I, I love that one because I came down with a cold yesterday. And so I, I knew I had to get here this morning to be able to give thanks to God in order to fight this virus, okay? And so did you. You're here for your health reasons, okay? Researchers, they go on to say, are, are, are finding that gratitude brings similar benefits in children and adolescents. Studies also show that kids who feel and act grateful tend to be less materialistic, get better grades, set higher goals, complain of fewer headaches and stomach aches, and feel more satisfied with their friends, families, and schools than those who don't. Let the people say so. Let the people say so. The researchers concluded a lot of these findings are things we learned in kindergarten or our grandmothers told us, but now we have scientific evidence to prove. The key is not to leave gratitude on the Thanksgiving table, but to take it with us every day into our lives. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So, so, so with confidence and in, in going into this psalm, Psalm 118, we find that thanksgiving then becomes almost contagious. As each one of these individual testimonies now bring the people to the door of the temple and then turns to the crowd with a bold invitation. And here the, the voice changes in verse 22. And it's going back to the people and it says, this is the day that the Lord has made. And then this grand invitation, let us rejoice together and be glad in it. (laughs) It becomes plural once again. Not only do we all have a story in the past to tell of God's love and mercy, but we now all have a confidence together to stand shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, wrapped together with each other, and find a place in God's heart. And in verse 25, as the voice changes for that last time, for the third time in the psalm, it looks to the future, where, where the people now are responding to this bold invitation to celebrate, and they say, Oh Lord, save us. You know what the Hebrew word is for the word, Oh Lord, save us? Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna, oh Lord, save us. In verse 22, then we arrive, uh, and it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, if I were to picture this scene, I could easily imagine that that those giving testimonies in verses 5 through 21... Even as they're giving their testimonies, it's almost like they're, 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 they're pointing their finger toward the heavens, where the assumption is that God resides. The Lord, He saved me, verse 5. The Lord, He is for me, verse 6. The Lord, He is the one who gave me refuge, verse 9. The Lord, He is the one who gave me strength in song, verse 14. The Lord, He is my salvation, again in verse 14. But in verse 19, when it comes to the opening of the gates of righteousness, 
Who is it that stands at the gate? But Jesus Christ. And every year prior to this one, the fingers may have pointed to the heavens, but on this day, they now point to Jesus Christ. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, O Lord, save us. And by the end of this Passover, we read, just days away from this particular moment, that the veil of the temple was ripped into two at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And with it, the final barrier between God and man was broken. And whatever barrier existed in verse 19 that required the opening of the gates of righteousness, whatever barrier there was was now broken. And then we have now an open door Oh, something we read of in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, now we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have such a great high priest over us, the house of the Lord, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Blessed is he who comes, and his name is the Lord. The words of song of the song may have just been a hope for the people on that day, but, but from that day onward, it became a reality. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And saying that, I am suddenly brought to the, the confidence that I can turn to Jesus Christ. And with thanksgiving, now enter into the presence of God. It is because of Him the final words of Psalm 118 now become a song of personal celebration and the celebration of all God's people. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God and I will exalt you. I can give thanks to God for He is good and His love for me endures forever. And from that year on now to today, this Palm Sunday, that chant takes on whole new meaning. And for us, it is no longer just this vague sort of response to a ritual said simply because you have to say it on that particular day, but it becomes a chance to renew and revive what is intended to be a vibrant relationship with a God who loved you and gave himself for you. Such things need to be kept alive, made vibrant and alive once again. I got a picture of that a number of years ago. From the, from, the, from the field of art, from the world of art. Uh, and, and, and it comes down to the Sistine Chapel. Have any of you ever been into the Vatican and, and seen the Sistine Chapel? It's an incredibly remarkable thing. In fact, I broke the rules when I was there, and I laid down on the floor in the middle of the room to see the picture of God as he's reaching down with his finger outreached for man who's reaching up for him. And I took that picture and it's just emblazoned in my mind. It is one of the true jewels of the world of art. It was painted after, in four years it took for Michelangelo on his back to finish the masterpiece. He did it in 1512. 
And the chapel went into daily use after he finished it. But in those days, the only light source came from candles. And as candles then burned year after year, the soot began to rise to the ceiling and it obscured the paintings. And after 400 years of soot and grime and dust collecting on the ceiling, the original art had lost its luster and needed to be restored. And so a team of restorative artists worked on the Sistine Chapel, and they began their work in 1984, did not finish it until 1999, when all of the colors were finally then restored to their original beauty. Now, before the restoration process, many in the art community thought that Michelangelo was a genius at composition, After all, how did he think to have Adam's hand stretching out, yearning to find the finger of God, which is already reaching for him? But it was also believed at that time that Michelangelo's coloration was mediocre at best. That as a painter, he was too dark and monochromatic and blah, blah, blah. And yet when they restored the frescoes to their original state, the colors began to pop, come alive. And everyone could begin to see the beautiful and fresh and ever spring-like colors that, that were there to begin with. The pale pinks, the apple greens, the vivid yellows, and the sky blue against a background of warm and pearly gray. And when the maker's true brilliance and goodness were revealed, people stood in awe of the artistry that was before them. I have to think in a similar way for many of us. Over the years, the soot and the grime and the dust of daily life. Oh, forget about over the years, over the week. Over the hours of a day. There is enough soot and grime and dust of daily life that obscures our vision of God's goodness to the point where God's character seems to be generic, mediocre, maybe even dark in its tones. And so we sing our praise. And we marched through Thanksgiving, not realizing that the effect of it sweeps the grime away and allows the colors to begin to reappear. And through the Word of God and the Spirit's presence, suddenly we we begin to see that we are no longer alone, but we no longer feel and deeply believe that, that, that we are apart from Him, but that through the Word of God and the Spirit's presence and the love of other Christians, God begins a work of restoration that allows us to be able to see the true colors of His brilliant goodness and allow us to look at Jesus Christ and to see Him come alive. On this Palm Sunday, let me ask you where you stand. Are all the songs of the day just a general expression of hope in your heart? Are you still wishing, just wishing, that the love of God would be yours as well? You can change that right now. By looking to Jesus Christ, hearing the words that have been echoing throughout the Scriptures, that God has so loved you that He sent Him, His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him would have everlasting life and a love that never ends. 
And that everlasting life and that everlasting love holds everything for you. His love, his presence, and his power. Jesus has opened the door and he invites you now to come to him. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let God's people say, his love endures forever. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that in our words of worship we might know the, the promise of the Scriptures that you inhabit the praise of your people and that in this moment and on this day, this very special day, we would sense your presence, that you would inhabit this place and that, Lord, with clarity we might see you. And then now, Lord, thank you for your love as we give ourselves to you, both now and forevermore, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.